You know, uh, there's an article online by a guy named Eric Schenkel, uh, and he writes this. He, the title is called Five Biblical Characters Who Prove Failure uh, Isn't Fatal. Uh, Samson didn't make that list. <laughs> He's not on that list. But he is on a list that uh, is uh, an important list that shows of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It's the list of the ancients who are commended for faith, and Samson is in that list. He, he is part of that group. And so when we think about this character, uh, this person that we've now, it's we are second week with Samson, uh, his relationship with God, uh, his, his, how we might understand him, who he is, it's complicated. It's complicated. In many ways, we speak relationships that way. It's complicated. It's hard to put words to exactly what's going on in his heart, in his life, how God's using him. I mentioned last week that there's a film, 2018 film, called Samson. And so I watched it this past week. Uh, I'm not going to encourage you to go out and rush out and buy that one. I'll say that. But there is a line in there, a place where the title character's mom is speaking to her now adult son. And she says to him, Samson, you must not forget who you are. Now, I seem to remember Mufasa saying that to Simba at some point, Um, but you're not to forget who you are. And we, of course, from last week's reading in chapter 13 of Judges, uh, we know who Samson's supposed to be, right? We know who this person is supposed to be. He was claimed before birth for the role as a deliverer. He was described as being one who was going to begin the deliverance of Israel from the the ones who, who are oppressing them, the Philistines. He's also charged with living a consecrated life in accordance with the vow of a Nazarite. And that begins even before he's born. His mom then steps into those faithful practices as well. So collectively, we might assume here that the person we're going to read about in the following pages after that chapter 13 is a champion who embraces being empowered by God. In past deliverers and judges, we would say that is one we might expect who is effective on the battlefield or in Samson's case, amongst other feats. Uh, We might also see this person as being obedient to and upholding the vow that they have, that they've made, and that's been made on their behalf. In other words, a people's champion who's also a champion for God. But that's not what we get with Samson. Um, My experience with characters like Samson and someone like this is very similar to a gentleman named Jeffrey Overstreet who wrote this. He says, in my childhood Sunday school classes, I remember hearing the most dazzling tales of military heroism. We thrilled to the exploits of Joshua, Gideon, and Samson, who seemed like inspiring role models. And Overstreet goes on to observe, it wasn't until adulthood when I read the stories carefully for myself that I saw how the flawed humanity of those, and this is his words, holy fools had been censored. Those stories are not about supermen. They're about what God does with, through, and often in spite of some truly ridiculous, unstable, untrustworthy characters. As much as we might imagine otherwise, I think here this morning, Samson looks the part of one of those truly ridiculous, unstable, and untrustworthy characters. And if our eyes are actually the windows to our soul, as they say, If that is actually the case, we learn something about Samson and his soul by following his gaze. You'll see that at the beginning of chapters 14 and chapter 16, the author is careful to say, Samson saw, and then he takes action following that. When we do, here's what we see. Probably one of Samson's uh, most recognizable shortcomings. 
The thing that most of us who are familiar with Samson would point back and say, this is, this is where Samson gets it wrong. In fact, I read a sermon this past week that diagnosed the problem this way, called Samson a he-man with a she-problem. That's how they described him. Samson has a proclivity for women, particularly Philistine women. In chapter 14, he literally demands to have a Philistine woman that he sees become his wife, even though to do so in the way that he talks to his parents is a blatant disregard for household order and cultural prohibitions about marrying outside the tribe. In chapter 16, he visits a prostitute in verse 1 who lives in a predominantly Philistine uh, city. And of course, in our text, we see his interest once more as he falls in love with Delilah in verse 4. Samson's first two so-called she-problems end up with a display of violence in the fallout of those stories. And so if you go back and read those, you're going to see lives lost, and you're going to see property destroyed. And you see those things coming out from Samson. That seems to be typical Samson fare. That seems to be when we think about Samson, that's what he's about. And so when we arrive at our present text, we're, we're expecting, if you're just reading up to this point in Judges, you're expecting to hear much more of the same. But instead, what we find here in chapter 16 is an even greater flaw. Something that's even bigger than we would say a she problem. There's something bigger in Samson's heart that's a bigger problem, which makes Samson's story a story for all of us, not just for the men who might have their own she problems. I won't ask for a show of hands if anybody has a she problem here this morning. So here we go. Let's look at our text this morning, and let's see what that looks like. From the beginning, it doesn't seem that Samson's interest in Delilah is the same interest that Delilah has for him. Right? Samson says in, uh, in our uh, chapter, verse 4, it says he's in love. Right? It's real dreamy. Around Valentine's Day, right? Just passed. Samson's in love with Delilah. Delilah's looking at it as a payday. A very handsome payday. We see that in verse 5. And so she's working with the local leaders uh, in her community. And they're looking uh, to turn Samson over. And she's willing to play that part. Now, I would say here, just on a side note, we don't know much more about Delilah's heart or her interest here. What we do know is that people in the past who didn't work with the Philistine leaders, that meant trouble for them. We see that with Samson's wife. And so that could have been quite the case. could have been intimidation. and could be a community uprising against her. We, we don't know. We just don't know about Delilah's story. But what we do know is the text is careful not to say that she was in love with, with Samson. She's looking forward to this payday. And she'll go on to achieve her goal, of course, but will do so with the help of Samson. Samson will help her the, the entire way. And we see this as the process unfolds. So number one thing we see here is Samson isn't, deceiving, uh, isn't deceived into giving away any secrets. All right? Erase that out of your mind. Samson's not tricked, and he's not blinded. All right? Maybe he's blinded to agree, but he sees fully what's going on. And we see that right there in our text. How could, you be, uh, how could you misunderstand what's going on when Delilah's initial question puts everything out on the table? She'll literally say, please tell me what makes your strength so great and how you could be bound so that one could subdue you. Hey, Samson, guess what we're talking about today? How we can destroy you. Let's go. Let's have fun. That's verse 6. Clearly what's at stake is before Samson. He can't play ignorant and he can't play uninformed. All right? No one's being tricked here. The second thing we see is Samson recognizes a threat here in this encounter with Delilah, but he doesn't acknowledge the threat that's right before him. Right? He recognizes there's a threat, but he doesn't see the threat that lays right there before him. 
On the first two occasions, he says, if they bind me. He has in mind probably at this point the Philistines. Enemies have been pursuing him all along. And so he uses very intentionally, if they bind me, as he imagines them. Not Delilah. He doesn't see her as being the possible threat here. He sees some sort of group out there that's, that's pursuing him. And so he tosses in a couple phony weaknesses. Bow strings, new, new rope, right? Let's throw those out there. Yay, tie me up those things. They get me tied up and I'm, I'm totally weak and we know those aren't anything. I remember hearing a series of sermons as a young person that was inspired by this particular text. And the, the preacher entitled the sermons, Dancing with Delilah. Has anyone ever heard a Dancing with Delilah sermon before? Uh, that, I always think that it seems like it goes so well together that that would, that would be a lot of sermons would be entitled that. But this series expounded on the dangers of cozying up with temptation, right? Getting comfortable with temptation. Because one's resolve over time would soften, and then ultimately over time you'd just give in, right? That temptation would eventually just wear you down. And the preacher exhorted us not to dabble in the out-of-bounds and off-limits kind of stuff. All right, so sub-note here. Don't mess around with the out-of-bounds or off-limits stuff. All right, let's move on with the rest of the sermon. But they would say, encourage us with those things. they say, don't flirt with temptation. Don't dance with Delilah, right? That doesn't sound good. Those fit together well. Clearly, Samson missed that sermon. <laughs> he didn't hear that one. And as our text continues, we see Samson's resolve. It begins to soften as well. And we see a marked change on the third occasion. Once you get past the, the bowstrings and the new ropes, something changes. Something changes in the heart of Samson and the expressions that he gives. We see here that on the third occasion, Samson gets warmer. Samson gets warmer? What? It's like that game, right? Colder. Ice cold. Oh, warmer. Getting warmer. Red hot. Hot, hot, hot. He gets warmer. Here's how he gets warmer on this occasion. He doesn't give up the secret of his strength, but he does point to a symbol of the vow. He points to his hair. Doesn't exactly tell her what the issue is there, but now he's no longer talking about ropes and bowstrings. He's talking about his hair, which we know is related to the vow. He clearly still playing with Delilah. And he now offers something uh, to her that's closer, though very silly, right? If you weave my hair, what? And he points to a certain knowledge of the real threat. Something changes in his language at this point. He's no longer saying they. He says, if you. Because he's learned that what he says, Delilah's going to do. Took him two times. <laughs> but now he knows she's the one who's going to be the threat at this point. He's still playing around here. But he clearly recognizes and expects that Delilah will act on what she learns, which she does, but again, to no effect. The dance here, of course, continues, and Delilah raises the stakes in verse 15. It's important when we read a text like this that we read it carefully and slowly. The author is going to tell you and give you certain clues about the inner workings of an individual and what they say and the questions they ask. And the words that speak to the inner workings of that individual may not be spoken by the individual themselves. They might use the other character to draw those out, to put those on display. I think verse 15 is one of those. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? How can you say, you love, I love you, when your heart is not with me? It's a curious question. It's well placed by the author. I don't think we're supposed to just read that as loving Delilah. I think it gets to the heart of the vow, of where Samson's heart is 
when it comes to the vow that he has before his creator and his God. And so the fourth thing we see here is because this fourth occasion, we see where Samson's heart is at and what happens. Sure, she nags and pesters him, right? That might work, you know, nagging and pestering. But he doesn't leave. Instead, he chooses Delilah over his vow. He chooses Delilah's insistence over his God. And he gives up his birthright. And we've heard that story before in Scripture. He doesn't seem to think that any of this would be a problem, of course. We can assume as much based on his reaction when he wakes up at the middle part of verse 20. The Philistines are upon you, she yells. And when he awoke from his sleep, he thought, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Right? I'll be fine. I'll just shake that hair off of me. I'll shake it off. T-Swift, shake it off. But it wasn't the same as before. Jeremy Shipper observes here, contrary to popular opinion, Samson's decision to reveal his secret may reflect an overestimation of his own ability rather than an example of unprecedented stupidity. <laughs> I think we can understand that. Who needs God when you're Samson, right? Who needs that? I'm a strong man. I don't need God. I got this. But in doing so, he had forgotten who he was. He forgot. Of course, when we step back to gain a wider view of the picture that's drawn here in Judges 16, the picture of a, emerges of an individual who gets called to a special purpose. Right? We know that with Samson, going back to chapter 13. Someone who will be taught what it means to live into that purpose. His parents are careful, careful, his unnamed mom and Manoah, they're careful to make sure they understood what God was expecting of their, their son, and they passed that on to him. We get a picture of one who later rejects his birthright in pursuit of personal endeavors and receives the due consequences and is stripped of his former glory and he's stripped of God's cover and protection. Now you could hear those four things, special purpose, taught what it means to live into that purpose, later rejects the birthright, pursues personal endeavors, uh, receives the due consequences. You could read those four things and say, yep, that's Samson. And you can say, wait, are we talking about Samson or the people in the book of Judges? Are we talking about the nation here? Are we talking about us? The Bible leaves that for us to ponder. To say, that's Samson's story, but that's our story as well. That's what people do. That's the cycle. The answer, of course, here is, who is it talking about? Yes, it is. We've already seen the fatal overestimate estimation that Samson made in the first part of verse 20. The more troubling portion of the verse, though, is what follows in the latter half of that verse. But Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know that. He couldn't recognize it. He couldn't see it. He thought everything was good. Again, it tells us about where he was at, where he had landed. Sometimes we can be so fixated on our sense of being right and what that means that we fail to recognize that God isn't in it with us, that we've gone out there on our own. We think that God can be manipulated for my glory and do my bidding, but God can't. We see that in Samson. And it's certainly the case in the first century. 
We know that early Jesus followers, different levels and experiences, including a group of folks that may or may not have been Jesus followers, but certainly wanted the Jesus power. In Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Siva, for instance, we see these different characters throughout uh, the scripture and the history of the church. The question for us today is, does that happen in our own day? Does this type of thinking happen? Do we overestimate our own position? And we forget or maybe lose sight of where God's at. Remember I sat with a uh, former minister a few years ago and we were talking about his marriage. Uh, he was sharing with me that his wife and him were having uh, troubles in their marriage. And uh, in that trouble, uh, he had found comfort in another woman. Uh, he said uh, emotionally, they're emotionally connected, um, but he couldn't see how that was a problem for his relationship with his wife. He'd gotten blinded to that. And he said this line, he said, but you know what, it's going to be okay because God's in it. Sometimes we can get so far removed from what's going on that we become blind to the situation that we're in and what we're doing, where we landed. Humility here goes a long way. Another thing goes a long way as well. Rest. What? Rest? Jimmy, did you just tell me I should go take a nap? Should I get a better night's sleep? You should. You should. That's your doctor telling you that, not me. But notice what Samson does in verse 19. He finds rest in the lap of Delilah. Again, when the author makes notes of these types of things, we're not to miss these types of pieces. When he gives up the secret, he finds rest. But the rest he finds isn't the kind of rest that intends to provide him long-term health and prosperity like shalom. We see that in verse 21, which makes that very clear, that it heaps a greater burden on him as he now grinds in the mills, on the millstone. You know, the kind of renewal that I have in mind here and the kind of renewal that Samson would have benefited greatly from is the type that God promises to those who wait upon the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40. They shall renew their strength. The kind that Jesus offers to you and me even now. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me all you are weary and carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. That's the life of discipleship. That's the life of finding yourself, your identity, who you are, embracing the life that Jesus offers to you freely and graciously, that God extends to you just as God would have extended to Samson and empowered him throughout his entire life. He goes on to say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Remember that humility part? And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. What a beautiful picture that is for the life of faith. A life of entering into rest. A life extended to us where we might experience that kind of joy and freedom and strength. Where we might experience life and not the kind of death we see in the Samson story. Of course, our story ends, and our reading this morning ends with a beautiful picture. In case you're wondering if that was even possible... Jimmy, did you just pull something out of nowhere? Try to put a hopeful ending on a sad story? Is that what you're up to? Is that what you're doing? Is this a shell game or something? Absolutely not. You can read the last verse. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The fatal flaw was there, but there were still signs of life. As we move to the season of spring, you might already be seeing 
in your garden, plants popping up, showing once more the signs of life, showing that even in the death, dire, cold, and it's been cold, hasn't it, of winter, the throes of winter, that there's life is coming. We see that with Samson's story. God offers that to us as well. May we find our rest in that today and every day of our lives. Amen.